Wise words. That was a Smith, and that was uh, Sheila Takeaway from the album Louder Than Bombs. I'm David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Welcome once again to another thrilling 60 Minutes. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should always play in the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be James Morrison, better known as Jim Bob from, yes, Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. So I've got that interview that I've probably divided up into about three, four, possibly five easy to digest little segments throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist and quality chat. But... To kick off the show, I think we should play your favourite of mine. Yes, that classic that we all loved so much. Let's get tattoos. Once in the blue, your dreams come true. It's someone's looking out for you. So party on two, let's buy some booze. Go downtown and get tattoos.
That's a bit excitable, isn't it? That's uh, Carter, the unstoppable sex machine with Let's Get, Let's Get Tattoos from their album Worry Bomb. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Jim Bob from the band who um, has got a live date next year, the 23rd of March. It's Shepherd's Bush. It might have actually sold out. But anyway, I caught up with him a few months ago to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that sort of groovy stuff, as well as... Um, Yes, their famous Glastonbury date on the Saturday night where we discuss, yes, that moment when they took the centre stage, all of the pyramid stages we like to know it. But anyway, before the interview, I think we should have a little bit more music. This is going to be, yes, Sheriff Fatman. Take it away. Go back to the kitchen 
Indeed, nice little bit of clapping there. That was Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine with uh, Sheriff Fatman from their album 101 Dam- uh, Damnations that came out in 1989, a fine year for music. Anyway, this is David Esau, the C86 Show, a bit later on. I will tell you how you can contact me, but to keep the suspense in the air or somewhere anywhere, um, I think we should play the first part of my interview when I caught up with Jim Bob or James Morrison from Carter to find out more about those early years, which I loved so much, which was um, around the time of James, Jamie Wednesday, the Pink Label and all those other groovy but very obscure bands. Anyway, Jim, take it away. Yeah, I mean, I, I think because uh, I sort of was, was doing things before that. I mean, you know, ever since I was at school, I was, I was in bands. So I was always desperately trying to get somewhere. And I suppose that was the first, you know, because uh, Jamie Wednesday and the Pink Label, that was the first... First time I released a record, which kind of made it, you know, more real than just playing gigs in local pubs. Yes. I don't know whether we were ever part of the scene. In a way, we were kind of didn't really fit in exactly with the scene that we were part of, if you see what I mean. No, I mean, I mean, there were sort of, I suppose, you know, when we did, uh, we we do the same gigs as, you know, so we did quite a few gigs with the June Brides, for example, just presumably just because we're on the same label. So, but, you know, but it, that was where it sort of ended, you know, the, if, if there was a, you know, we hung out with them when we did gigs together, but that was kind of it. 
Yes, but um, because I, I had sort of got that indie world down to 83 to 87, again, that is the duration of the Smiths. And um, and from both bands that I've sort of interviewed, they, there is this kind of the five-year narrative of getting together, making a sound, and sort of just playing in front of their friends and family and anybody they can kind of emotionally blackmail to come along. But it was kind of getting a play on John Peel that would give them that sort of moment up and then a John Peel session and then the album. So obviously the, the Jamie Wednesday, you know, you had a sort of a few years together, didn't you? Yeah, we had, uh, I don't know how long we were together. Yeah, it probably was, I suppose it was probably about four years or something. Because we, because we sort of changed. There was a, because I started out, I was doing uh, solo stuff with, under the name Jamie Wednesday, and it was very sort of twee home recordings, um, and then we became a band, but with a different lineup. You know, it was me, me and Les who was in Carter later, and we, you know, so we sort of and then developed from there, getting a, and we got the horn section, and when Dean joined, joined as well, it kind of changed, became more of a serious sort of thing. Yes. And did, um, and obviously sort of most people also sort of after they've had the musical moment and thought, God, that's a lot of work and not a lot of money, get a day job and then sort of put it away a bit. But you've obviously thought, no, I'm going to keep on on this furrow for a bit longer and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing was uh, with, I mean, at the time when, you know, Jamie Wednesday, we were, I mean, we, we, could, we were me and Les were unemployed and it was it was a lot sort of I mean you know, it's probably impossible now compared to what it was like then you know you could be on the dole and you could you could survive and be in a band and and still go out and have a good you know you could do all these things that on 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 dole money that you well you wouldn't be allowed to now I suppose so so we in a way we didn't need to get a job and then, then I think when it became more serious I think we actually joined the uh, enterprise allowance scheme Yes, the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which is something that, I've, you know, again, you wouldn't believe how many people from the that period yeah. have mentioned that unemployment has been a good we, thing, and the Enterprise Allowance has also been an even better thing. Yeah, because we, we went to, I mean, this is a one of those memories that I think, well, did that actually happen? Well, I think it happened. We, we, we went to the, we had to go to one sort of business meeting at the beginning of it, me and Les for the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, uh, kind of, you know, like a business introduction meeting. But I, I remember being there with... Um, uh, Jimmy from KLF, <laughs> so he was there as well. <laughs> well, it's also because I can re I remember you needed to show that you had a thousand pound in your bank account, which was always a bit odd because it's like, well, how did you, you know, like people had to find this money though they yeah. were, had to be on the dole to prove to the people that you could go on this thing, which meant that they all must have thought, well, there must be something a bit strange going on here. But it didn't matter in those days, did it? Yeah. It was the eighties. We were all sort of drinking barley cup and eating TVP with great enthusiasm, and um, yes, listening to interesting indie music on. Pill. I mean, I remember it was that you know the uh, the Midland Bank in Brixton had a <laughs> was mani had a manager who was sort of seemed to be really into uh, into music, so that that's where we borrowed the money from from the Midland Bank in Brixton. Excellent. So that's that's how we managed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was you know I think there was a lot of sort of strange ways people had to try and you know conjure this kind of this bank statement for a thousand pound. So then, when the band did, you have a moment when the band you went, "This is it, Jamie Wednesday." You did a Ziggy Stardust. That's the end of it. I think it was uh, not. Do you know? I don't really remember. All, what, I mean, what, what I remember was you know I remember how Carter formed and, and it formed that the two Jamie Wednesday ending and Carter forming happened sort of within two weeks because we you know we had a, a jamie wednesday gig 
at the Astoria, at the Astoria, like a support gig at the Astoria. And uh, we, I know we we wanted, still wanted to do the gig, but we didn't want to do it as Jamie Wednesday anymore. And so we kind of, we just went ahead. And then when we turned up, that was when we told the promoter, actually, we're not Jamie Wednesday anymore. <laughs> and kind of went went ahead and did the gig. But I, I don't, I mean, all I can remember was Felix was, we, there was a point we, we came a bit sort of uh, frustrated by it, not frustrated, but sort of stuck with it, with the, with the lineup of the band, not that not the people in it, just the sound. We wanted to do different things, and it was sort of this, you know, once once you're in a band, you've established a sound, and you know the instruments that have been played. It's difficult to suddenly, you know, let's use let's use drum machines and synths or something, which is what we wanted to do at the time. Yes, the creative process and the early years. That's the first part of my interview with Jim Bob from the band. I've still got three or four depending how I'm feeling, parts of that interview to play. But um, I think we should break it up with some music. This is going to be a track taken from the album 1992, The Love Album, The Only Living Boy in New Cross.
emotional stuff, isn't it? The only living boy in New Cross from the album 1992, the love album. Anyway, this is David Esau, the C86 show. This is going to be the next part of my interview with Jim, where we talk about the different scenes, because obviously there was the indie scene, there was the dance scene, the Seattle scene, and then a few years later, Britpop, but... Carter came in a time when um, they weren't really fitting into any particular camp. And we find that a little bit difficult, especially the music papers. Anyway, this was Jim's reply. Jim, what was your reply? We were in the kind of bit, I think we were in the bit that sort of, that doesn't exist in the uh, in the official story of what happened in to music, in, in, in indie music in Britain. You know, all the sort of BBC for documentaries, they always, they skip, there's sort of two or three years that, that didn't happen. Yes. And I think it's because it spoils the narrative that, you know, which is the idea that there was, there was, you know, the, the Manchester, Manchester scene or whatever. And then uh, the Americans came with their, you know, with their, with their check shirts and dirty jeans. And then the British came and saved us from that. And that was uh, Suede and Blair and everyone. But there's that bit in between that, that, that sort of spoils that story. Whereas, I know, it, it's absolutely right. <laughs> bands like us and Popular Itself and one stuff, you know, all in the charts. But uh, so, you know, being successful, but it kind of, it spoils the story a bit. Yes. So they, they just pretend it never happened. Well, it's interesting because there was also, I remember the Sundays came along as well with their album, and well, two, I think, but the read and write and, and arithmetic. And yeah. again, that was like perfect. You know, it was a fantastic album. And again, you're right on those BBC4 documentaries on a Friday night that we love to watch when you're a certain age, especially, you know, it's like, yes, all that scene just gets a bit like tipex out. Yeah. In, in I mean, a where, are, where are the Sundays in that? They're not. They don't sort of get mentioned, do they? No, and and yet they were sort of they crafted an amazing debut album and probably did a good second album. So obviously, but but at the same time, I, I sort of fast forward a slight a few years. I remember seeing you at um, the waterfront in Norwich, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, you you were suddenly hitting Glastonbury Festival with 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 sort of like main stage appeal. Yeah, it's. Uh... Don't it? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I have a sort of uh, my only my, my only. Th- it's not really a theory. I think the thing is that uh, I think maybe we were good. That we were actually quite good, and that's the sort of you know it wasn't like a fluke or because I I think some people find it hard to understand how it's possible. You know, that some sort of accident. But uh, I think you know maybe just at the time it was what people wanted to. You know, it's quite an exciting thing for a lot of people. Yes. So you know that was why it wasn't. Because you know, the Glastonbury thing, I know that troubles that troubles a lot of people. In <laughs> I could think, think of one sort of uh, person, this is Ian Patterson at the BBC. Always, I've seen him on three different occasions on television uh, talk about Glastonbury and say that how awful whatever year that was we played because that was the year that we played, so therefore it was awful. <laughs> and it, it does get sort of mentioned in jokes and people say you. If you think the lineup's bad this year, look at the lineup for. But it's terrible. I can't remember what year it was. Nineteen ninety-two or ninety-three. Look at the year. You know that was this year. But you know those. The reason those bands were on that year was because that's what was popular that year. So, it's not that. Yes, well, I because I, I suppose it's actually just that having that musical moment. It was a bit like when Pulp suddenly. Yes, they they also headlined and they'd yeah. come from nothing and obviously. Yeah, I think people are a bit more comfortable, but I can I don't know if it was the same year, but the Orb were also kind of massive one year and the whole festival felt like it was just going mad for the Orb. And the same with Carter. I mean, you sort of captured that musical moment 
which, you know, everything lined up perfectly and the crowd went mental. And the same with the levellers. I remember seeing them once. And again, you know, now you, you, know, you think, oh, that's incredible. The levellers were the band. But, you know, I suppose it's just like people just, it, things just all lined up, you know, because you this was on your third album you were um, promoting at that time as well. Yeah, because we, I mean, we probably, although we were, uh, with Cart, it was like, uh, like commercially success-wise was probably, you know, was that third album and around that time. But I think we'd probably all, almost already peaked in terms of popularity with, you know, with, with the album before and and playing Reading Festival where we were, where we, sort of everybody seemed to like us. Whereas by the third album, it was successful that uh, people were starting to to not like us. <laughs> in, a, in a quite aggressive way so uh you know so um and it was a different crowd as well you know so the audience at the by the by the time of the third album the and the glass the, the audience were were uh, a lot younger you know had sort of you know 14 15 year old kids in the audience whereas before that it was when we started it was old blokes who who missed the clash <laughs> so, so that had changed you know yeah and did it and I mean, you know, that's one thing I hadn't really um, appreciated so much until I'd been interviewing people was that that thing that, you know, I, that was uh, I think it was David Newton from the Mighty Lemon Drops and also the guy from the Primitives as well, where you know an album came out with the great, you know, with great enthusiasm and realised that everybody had sort of moved on, including your fans. I, I just wonder how that kind of feels when when you start experiencing those moments after the year, you know, those couple of albums and years where everything was just kind of, just everything was falling into place almost too easily. I think, uh, I mean, tend to, uh, I mean, it, you know, speaking personally, I'd say tend, tend to realise it when it's too late, you know, so you sort of, so I think as, as a band, Carter, you know, went on for too long. You know, but I, I only know that with, you know, in hindsight, you know, looking back, I think, you know, that we should have, you know, so the later stuff is is not is not very good. You know, it's, it's certainly not as good as the as the earlier stuff. So I think you tend to because you go along, you know, maybe you write songs and you, and you still believe that you're writing good songs. And it's only later you, make, you look back and you think, well, that's that's, you know those lyrics are embarrassing or whatever, you know. But so I think at the time you just go along with it and you, you don't notice that you're necessarily notice you're playing in smaller there even though it should be obvious you know or you know you're playing in a in a club instead of instead of Brixton Academy or whatever but yeah. so it tends to be when it's too late <laughs> I know and that's so true of life that is the second part of my interview with Jim Bob from Carter and as I said at the beginning of the show if you were paying attention they have or he has a live date of Carter on the 23rd of March at Shepherd's Bush tickets have gone on sale they might have sold out who knows it could be a memorable, exciting um, gig. Well, I'm sure it will be, but I also realise there's um, a big political change happening around that time. So double excitement or double trouble, who knows? We'll wait and see. Anyway, I think we should have some more music. This is a track taken from their um, album, 30-something. This is Surfing USM. Take it away. Like, drink what you like and still climb into your 26-inch waist trousers and zip them closed. Then you reach that age... 24, 25, your muscles give up, they wave a little white flag, and without any warning at all, you're suddenly a fat bastard.
telling me that was very energetic. I'll have to take a puff of Ventolin, I think. That was Surfing USM, taken from their third album, 1992, the Love Album, which got to number one in the UK charts. Check it out. Anyway, the third part of my interview with Jim Bob, where we talk about the longevity, the narrative of the band and uh, keeping it together. And this was his reply. I thought. I mean, with, without thinking about it too much, we just sort of uh, got. I mean, I think the thing with uh, with 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 um, albums and recording it with songs is that. Uh, I mean, it's not the case now, but back then, I sort of I didn't find it that hard. I didn't think it was, you know, when people sort of talked about making an album, you know, it took them five years to make an album. I, I never, I could never really understand that because I found it quite, you know, it was something that I, I sort of felt not easy, but you know, it wasn't. I wasn't. It wasn't a struggle to write a song. I think, yeah, no, it was almost easy. You know, it was like if I if I was trained to make furniture, I wouldn't struggle to make furniture every time I had to do it. You know, it was just that's a terrible analogy, but <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but it's but it's interesting. Yeah, I was just going to say I've been to Lawrence from Felt and now Mozart's Go Kart. Um, I think that's what it's called. Um, and he was saying okay. that. But, um, what was it called? His new band, Go Kart Mozart. Go-Kart Mozart. That's the one. Yes, yeah, so he was saying that, in theory, one should get better as a songwriter through experience. And he actually mentioned, you know, if you were a carpenter, you would be making better furniture than you did when you were younger. So so what is it about that kind of creative process that then, like you said, it was quite easy during that, that period where you were sort of writing whole albums and, and fantastic kind of hits as well, to sort of later on when things start to sort of become a bit more tricky? Yeah, I, I suppose you. I mean, if you're, especially if you're writing lyrics, I suppose you you, you can run out of ideas. Or, or if you, if you're writing lyrics that 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 mean something, even if it's only to the, to you as the person writing them, then uh, yeah, you know, you're going to run out of run out of things to write about, maybe. Yeah. Or, or so maybe you have to look for. I mean, you know, maybe in sort of more recent times. That's why I've I've tended to sort of write about very specific. That almost con- almost concept albums, because because uh, there's nothing else. You find you've got nothing else to say, so I don't, maybe that's why you run out. You know, because your first, in theory, your first songs are the ones that that you've kind of had with you before you you know before you had to make a record, and then the second one you write about what you want to write about, and that carries on, and then you sort of maybe you write about the experience that you're going through. As as you know, as a successful sort of uh, artist or whatever, and then you sort of get a bit stuck. But then you know, I, I sort of it was interesting talking to dear old fish from you know who was in Marillion talk about his new album, and the the sing the first single is a man with I think it's called Man with a Stick, which is about his dad getting older and you know the fact that you eventually. You know, you start playing with sticks when you're young and then you end up in old age, you know, with a stick. And then there was David Bowie's Black Star album, which kind of has an awful lot of references to death and dying and to sort of the end. So obviously, material, you know, like we have enough experience to sing about stuff, but it probably is a bit more different than what an 18 or 20 year old is feeling in the sense of being able to sort of make it kind of jolly and fun. It's probably a, is it a harder process dealing with those kind of subjects? Um, what do you do? You mean? Well, I suppose, I suppose trying to sort of write something meaningful about something that's so serious and so kind of emotional, um, you know, like watching your parents getting old or having to deal with death yourself. I just wondered, you know, as a as a creative artist and a writer, 
trying to sort of put that into some sort of song is that more of a, a complex situation than when you're younger where you're just trying to make things sound nice uh yeah i suppose yeah i suppose so because you, well, i suppose it's down to your what where you set your sort of standards of you know whether you can because i'm sure you can get away with get away with stuff you know you can you can sort of um you know write things that are kind of okay about those but if you if you want to do something that 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 you're not embarrassed about and sort of you know then it's then it's harder i suppose i mean because I've, I've been writing uh you know novels and that I've, I've found a lot of my sort of directed that kind of writing about those serious things and you know and as you say about parents you know about my mum is sort of comes out through other other characters in in novels so i suppose you could do that in in songs you know you end up creating creating fictional characters to write about just yes. to find something else to, to write about the creative process always a bit tricky especially with age well sometimes it isn't but anyway who knows that is the third part of my interview with jim bob more to come anyway i think more in music this is going to be blood sport for all and then i'll tell you how you can contact me at the show it's very exciting Oh. 
save the queen blood spoke for all the coldest stream gods of them all sang god save the queen blood spoke for all the cold stream gods of them all sang god save the queen blood spoke for all the coldest stream gods of them all sang god save the queen blood spoke for all Bloodsport for All from the album 30-something. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. Well, as long as they're kind of constructive and positive, otherwise don't bother. You can via Facebook or Twitter, just go to at C86 Show, and I will be there, and I normally reply within 24 hours. Anyway, this is the next part of my interview with Jim Bob, where we talk about that kind of Ziggy Stardust moment when the band finishes, and this was his reply. What was your reply, Jim? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, uh, I mean, it was quite specific. You know, I'd, I think I decided, because by, by the end, by the end, like the last tour that we did, which was in America, there were, we were, we'd gone from being two, you know, two, two men and a tape machine on a chair to, uh, we were a six piece band with, with everything live. So it was a very much, a, you know, it was pretty much a totally different band. Um, so, and it, so we kind of, you know, and that didn't that didn't help the sort of the way the way the band was going because you know there were more arguments just by there being more people around. Uh, so it was, so I sort of, bef, bef, you know, before we even started that tour, I, I was sort of I'd had enough. But then we went to America just to see, you know, almost if we could save the band kind of thing. And then it just made things worse. So I, I, so in the end, I just I remember I do remember sitting in a coffee shop in. Can't remember where it was, somewhere in America, and telling Les that I didn't want it. Yeah, so it, it was kind of very defined moment then. But it took, but it, but we sort of carried on going for quite a few months after we decided. Which must have been. Uh, did they? Was it kind of obvious that the things were sort of becoming, you know, coming to an end? 
it was I think it was only really obvious to I mean, the way I see it, it was more obvious to me than it was to anybody else. Because I think, uh, I mean, maybe Les would, would, you know, he, he understood it. He, I mean, like the rest of the other four people in the band were surprised. So maybe it wasn't obvious. Mm. Cause that, but that might be just me hiding my, my sort of true feelings. I didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't say to everybody, this isn't going anywhere. Or I just sort of thought that to myself and maybe spoke to my family about it, but didn't. You know, I, I should have, you know, I should have said it earlier. I'm not very, uh, very courageous in that sort of way. Well, it's always tricky, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, I think there's there's two types of people. There's someone who, you know, is proactive and will say, that's that's it, let's finish. And then there's other people. And I sometimes in that camp where you prefer somebody to do that for you and then you go, oh, thank God, I didn't want to be the person to say it. And I remember sort of talking to the guitarist from James who at the peak of their kind of, you know, commercial power, was sitting there and he said, shall we just split up? And they went, yeah, because we all hate each other. And they all agreed. And it was like, well, that's great. You know, I'm glad we're all on the same level. But, you know, I think that that was a moment after they'd done all those albums in the 90s where they just kind of, it, it just was not good for anybody anymore. So I think in a way when he just kind of threw this idea up, um, in a drunkard moment, and everyone was just relieved. Everyone agreed, it, yes, let's just split up now and um, get a life for a bit. And then, yeah. so I just wondered if you know people were a bit, you know, like in that way, had just said, yeah, thank God you said it because someone's needed to say that. No, they didn't really. I, know. <laughs> I think it's because they they was because they were the, the rest of the people in the band were kind of. It was still, with the exception of the drummer, it was still relatively new to them. So they were almost so going. To, so, for example, going to America for them, you know, it was like a holiday in a way, you know, where they went and they got to play some music. And whereas for me, it was a, it wasn't a holiday, you know, it was the, you know as far away from holidays could possibly be. And because that, that by that point, I was paying for everything, you know, I was paying for the bus and the hotels and everything. So, so for me, it was like a, you know, a, a removing a burden weight off the shoulders and. Whereas for them, it was like uh, the holiday had ended suddenly. Yes, because <laughs> everybody I spoke to, it's always America, only the, only once. I think it's just normally enough to sort of finish most bands off. So you'd obviously had that experience as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've been to America a lot of times before and it was it was always, I think it's because it was quite sort of, because it, it always seemed to take so long to do, you know, because because you're driving a lot of the time. So maybe you know we're there for. It's, it's quite a sort of just an intense place for a British band to be, or it certainly was then. You know, because everybody's, you know, everybody in the music business was, was so not everyone, but you know, so many people in the music. It was a different sort of situation to here. You know, everyone was kind of insincere and didn't believe anybody really liked you and. And you had to do all these things that you would never do here, you know, the, the just, you know, just traveling around, going to radio stations, just to go in and say, hi, we're casting your civil sex machine, you're listening to blah, 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 and then getting in a car and then driving another 200 miles, doing that, you know, you would never do that in, you know, in Norwich and <laughs> Liverpool and Manchester, or if you, or, you know, unless you were there. So yeah. it was that kind of thing, I think, sort of where's British sort of, People don't they feel like they're, you know, and, and maybe because you're not as, you know, if you go, presumably you're not as successful as you are in your own country or whatever. So it's, 
Yes, the excitement of tour in America. It's often the one that uh, finishes most bands off. Anyway, I have um, another bit of that interview, but I think we should break it up with some more music. This is Shopper's Paradise. Oxford Street, the Christmas shopping rush has begun.
And that was the track Shoppers Paradise. Anyway, another part of the interview that I had with Jim Bob a few months ago where we talk about the admin. I love about the admin and um, publishing who owns what. Jim, tell us about your admin and whether you navigated those tricky waters with a certain amount of success or not. Yeah, I mean, we were quite... Um, I mean, we were lucky in, in, in terms of the first... Because we were, with, you know, with... with uh, Big Cat for, was the first record we did, and we, we sort of got stuck with in a deal there with the first single. There was a sort of period of time after the first single where we weren't we weren't allowed to re, re, uh, release anything else because we were stuck in this in this deal. But so that was the only time. So that was right at the beginning. But after that, we tended to sort of we got quite like you know we got because we signed to Rough Trade. I mean, admittedly, we signed to them just on the day that they. Uh, laid everybody off so it wasn't ideal but uh, <laughs> and then but then when we got the big you know because the big the big deal we got was with with chrysalis and they were a kind of that we were at that with that luckily that sort of back you know when everybody wants to sign a band so they kind of make a contract you know you sign a contract that's very much in your favor so we were we were lucky in that respect that we didn't we had a very good contract it's sort of there wasn't a lot they could do about it when, when we were sort of less successful <laughs> So, so we were, you know, we were we were fine with that, and we didn't get ripped off by by anyone majorly. We had and we had a great, we had always had a great manager, who was, you know, almost like a very much part of the band. He was there from the, you know, from the very beginning. Yes. Yeah, we were lucky with all that kind of stuff. God, that's fantastic. And obviously, the the wonderful world that is kind of having the reunion. How did that sort of feel? Because cause I've spoke to a few people who said, oh, this has been great. It's been quite therapeutic and enjoyable. And one band, things aren't good. Um, so how did how did it go? I mean, I know they, yeah, that's terrible. Um, so, yes, yeah, so how, how did your sort of reunion go? I mean, I mean the, the thing is, that I, I suppose, because we hadn't, we hadn't never, we had no intention of doing it. And people asked a lot, you know, but just uh fans of the band and then promoters started to ask you know after a period of time after the band being away more and more people were asking uh and then um so we only actually reformed because uh when Wiz from Mega City 4 died and they did and they put on a tribute gig mm -hmm. for him and we sort of played four songs at that uh that's so that's why we reformed you know then once we enjoyed that and after that there was an offer from a promoter and I mean, I mean, and by that point we were both me and Les were, you know, completely skinned. So it was the, so the money definitely. You'd be lying if I said the money didn't come into it at all. So it was somebody offering enough enough money for at the time for for it to be worthwhile, kind of doing something that didn't necessarily want to do. But then once we started doing it, when we did the first, you know, we did we did two gigs. Um. I mean, they sold because they they sold out really quickly, and everybody just just seemed to be so. It was like everyone was pleased to see us, and because there's none of that. I think with the reform band, there's. I mean, firstly, you can come back slightly bigger, well, potentially bigger than you were when you left, kind of thing. So we weren't necessarily as big as we were in 1992 or whatever, but we were definitely bigger than we were when we when we stopped playing. So that's nice, and then. Uh, there's, there's kind of, it's, it's almost easier to just entertain, than that you so you can enjoy it because you're not sort of, um, you're not fighting against the music business anymore or trying to make a point with, because you're not playing, you, you know, you're not playing new songs, so 
so that I think that was that was that was you know that was probably the the best thing about it was the was the audience and being able to enjoy it more than we did before and that is so important especially with age anyway we have more of that interview to come up but i think we should have a little break and have more music this is going to be a track by jamie wednesday yes the famous band from the 80s this is titled vote for love and why not If I could buy my love a party dress Then I would buy my love a party dress And if I could teach the world some tenderness Then I would teach myself some tenderness Let's vote for love Goodbye, my love, a party dress And I can stand for love and tenderness If you can stand for love and tenderness When will we love again? Could stand for love Then I would stand And I said Vote for me And vote for love And then We will love Again When will We love Again Until we do Very passionate stuff. That is Jamie Wednesday, the track called Vote for Love. This is going to be the next part of my interview that I had with James Morrison, a.k.a. 
I think it's that way around, Jim Ball, from Carter, where we talk about the uh, complexities and sometimes the trickiness of having a reunion. And um, I was talking about with some bands who came back, promoters getting a bit too excited and booking far too larger venues and then finding there weren't that many people who wanted to see them. And um, yes, the simplicity and sometimes complexity of having these kind of events um, years, sometimes decades after a band have finished and they're starting to get back on the road and in new venues. And this was James's answer. James, I think you have an answer to this. I mean, you'd think, but then we had the the light show was was so ridiculous that you know, we still had, there was still so much went into it. And because we only did, because we did, I don't know how many, how many years we did it. We sort of did like eight, seven or eight years of just doing two gigs in a year. And so there's kind of a, such a big build up to it and, and meetings and trying to get just, just to find people to work on, to work on the gigs. And then you get, there's that sort of pressure of, well, what if something goes wrong? And it, you've had that year build, yearly build up to it. Um, but uh, but we definitely we were definitely made a point of only wanting to do that to to do like one or two gigs in the sort of size of venue that we knew we could sell out and not do a tour and not play and not carry on you know if there was ever a point where people weren't buying tickets we would definitely stop we wouldn't think oh let's you know let's sort of downsize it a bit so yes. that was like that was a definite sort of so yeah I, I yeah so we kind of did it. But you know, we could. I think you know, we could have done a lot more. But in a way, we did it. Uh, I'd say we did it sort of perfectly. Yes, and obviously, the other thing that a lot of people really like to do, and then they get to that obviously uh, that age where we're just sort of getting everything tidied up with the back catalogue and all the sort of B sides and demos and stuff like that. So, you with Cherry Red, because it's Cherry Red that does a lot of reissues yeah. for you, isn't it? Has that been? a nice process to do and sort of felt like oh that's good that we've managed to go back and sort it out because i know i think bob has still got loads of material the band bob um to sort of sort out and get through and try and find out and there's a combination of people having to do that and not being that bothered and also trying to locate stuff as well and, and who owns what and stuff like that so has that been something that's been kind of easy and also fun well, I mean, with the because uh, there's the this uh, box set thing that's coming out. It was our my my manager and Carter's manager, and it, sort of uh, in more you know for the reform version of Carter. Anyway, Mark was uh, um, I think you might have spoke to Mark or on email. He's um, he it's really his project. It's his because he was a he was a big fan, and you know, that's how we first met him. Uh, so he it was more his. He was the sort of it's more his than it is ours. So he did most of the hard work. We just had to kind of check things and listen to stuff. And so, because, because to do it yourself, it's, it is quite tedious there. Cause there's been a lot of, a lot of requests from, from Cherry Red and various other labels to do a Jamie Wednesday, collection of Jamie Wednesday stuff. And the thing is we haven't got, we've either not got stuff or we've got it on cassette or we can't find it. And so it becomes, so it doesn't happen because we can't, we almost can't be bothered, as you say. You know, is so. Is if somebody else will do it, then, then it's then it's it's a lot more fun, and you know, you just got to make sure that it's a good quality. Because one one of the issues with uh, with Carter, the Jamie ones there as well to a certain extent, is that there aren't with Carter definitely there are, there are no demos or anything, and there are, there aren't a lot of live recordings. There are no, we just everything we did was very uh, was for a reason. So we because we, we didn't. 
we we barely rehearsed. You know, we used to, so we used to write songs and make it make a, like a the backing sort of you know the drum machine and everything, um, and then we'd record. And then they become records. They were never, they were never, so we don't have it because we're always asked, you know, have you got any uh, stuff that didn't get released? And no, everything, you know, it's like everything was released. <laughs> That's fantastic. Because I think it was the Farmers Boys from the early 80s. They also went for the drum machine sound as well. But yours did sound quite a bit different to the Farmers Boys. Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit different, actually. Yes. That's quite, um... yeah. So then obviously, you know, you've got a, a live date coming up in the new year. Does that also fill you with excitement and a certain, certain dread? Because what you were saying is that if you only play one or two gigs a year, there's a lot of pressure on that to get it all right. And you can't, you know, I suppose with a tour, you've got a few dates before, you know, you get into the stride of it. So sort of having to sort of hit it like this, does it mean, wow, this is going to be quite an experience? Yeah, I mean, I because I, I've sort of, not not intentionally, but I seem to have uh, virtually stopped doing gigs, and was, was you know over the past sort of few years, I because I used to do sort of at least one or two tours every year, and then in the past couple of years, I because I think because of the things like you know because of the all day indie things, there are a lot of those on. The one I was asked to do a few of those, and then I realised that oh I could just do that, you know I could just do do three of those a year. And that's that's me as a live performer. <laughs> so, uh, but then you know we thought, and then I think it was the other couple of years ago we were. Uh, um, I was I, I I sort of wondered if I could do a bigger you know like do one big gig like Shepherd's Bush, and uh, and it was it was bigger than anything I could do on my own. So so that's why we did it the first time, and then doing it again, and it's you know I was just one sale today, but. Um, yeah, I mean, what the same thing. I was terrified before with Carter. I'm still worried about now, which is, will enough will people buy tickets? I'm not sort of. Yeah, you know, I worry more about that than I don't worry so much about the performance because I'm sort of that's down to that's that's up to me. So if that's wrong, it's that's just my fault. Whereas I'm kind of not in control of of whether I'm popular or not. Yes, <laughs> God. that must be an, an emotion. It must feel kind of being emotionally. Um naked really mustn't it you know you know as you as you sort of neurotically look at ticket sales yeah i mean because it's, it's it's silly really you know and it's sort of i do and it's almost it's not uh like if i did a, if i did a if i did a gig that if i played a place that held 40 people and there were 40 people there i'd be happier i genuinely think i'd be happier with that than playing a place that held 2000 with 500 there <laughs> it's just a sort of psychological thing of like, you know. Yes. Well, it, has, I, it has to be full. Yes. Well, I suppose, you know, having seen, you know, Spinal Tap quite a few times, there's the one with the, the you know, when they're on the same bill as the, uh, is it the puppet? The puppet the pup, show. The yeah. puppet yeah. show. And um, I guess those things are just there in your subconscious. Yeah. Mm. And I've, done, I've definitely done some of those. You know, I've done sort of, I've played empty things to empty venues to, in sort of horrible places. Where, yeah, where there are essentially puppet shows on. <laughs> <laughs> God, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Really? Yeah. So, what would kind of what would you say to your kind of eighteen-year-old self? I mean, because you, you've obviously you've not only been in just one band, you've been in several, done the reunion, and done lots of solo stuff as well, and and written books, etc. So, huge amount of experience. And I just wonder if there was something that you thought, God, that would, if I could just say something to an eighteen-year-old, this would be it. Yeah, I mean, I I think because 
when I've been asked similar sort of questions in the past, I, I always used to say, to, and I've seen I've seen other other people from bands say the same thing, which is like you know where I would have told myself to enjoy it more and be you know not not be such a not moan about everything. But but actually, if I think about it, that's probably part of the probably part of the fun, isn't it? Being 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 or, or that you know shapes the person you're on the end. You know, if you're sort of angry and, and you hate everybody and you don't trust anybody and you know that's you know that's part of that's part of the thing isn't it so when, especially when you're 18 you don't want to be 18 it seems like a good idea now you know because i think there were times when carter were in the in the charts and that really or when we went to number one in the album charts and i was in such a foul mood about the whole thing <laughs> it's just because i'd reached that point where you know where obviously you start to sort of you know become a bit sort of just you know i don't know you sort of disappear up yourself a bit uh but then you know maybe that's maybe that's part of that's part of the fun isn't it being you know you get to be a you know a bit of a twat about the whole thing yes. so i don't yeah i'd say just yeah just just i don't know follow your dreams <laughs> <laughs> that's even better i mean do you i mean because because a lot of people and that's something that i've always been a bit surprised with with that the, the you know, like after doing all that music and stuff, that the royalty checks don't sort of, you kind of expect something, but most people go, oh yeah, but we get about £60 a year. And you think, what? £60? You know, it's like, yeah, and then I have to divide it amongst the band, you know, so we just give it to charity. So do you sort of still kind of look each year going, oh, that's fantastic. I'll be able to da, 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 pay the rent. Uh, it's, I, it's, you know, it hasn't been that bad over the years. There have been uh, royalties. I mean, obviously... I mean, like everyone else, it's sort of, it's shrunk now because of because nobody buys anything anymore. So there's, there's you know there's that that's the sort of the noticeable difference now, I suppose, is is that is that yeah, just that pure thing of of people aren't buying things and or yeah, I don't yeah. So you know you you'll notice now there's but you know up until up until Spotify. I was I was okay. <laughs> I, mean, I couldn't buy an island or anything, but you know, and you sort of you. you I mean, what, what you know it does make you aware of how how much money people like Paul McCartney must have. You know, when you look at your sort of you, you if you look at the sort of royalties from say a song like Sherry Fat Man or something, and you think like you know, imagine if that was a Beatles song. You could you know how many times you multiply this. About, you know, your sixty pounds if you're Paul McCartney is probably I don't know, I can't imagine what this isn't sort of bear thinking about. But. Yes. This is true actually, isn't it? And obviously and obviously, you know, having this other creative endeavour with the with the writing, has that been something that was kind of a relief to be able to sort of keep your creative kind of life going but in a different format? Uh yeah, I mean I didn't uh it wasn't because it's still. I mean, I've, so I've I've had like five books out, so it's still relatively, still a relative novelty. Uh, kind of still sort of it's still exciting to have it if a book is published, in the same way as it used to be with with a record coming out. You know, it used to be so exciting. Um, so it's still that, but I, and it's 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 good to know that I can do something that's seen as creative i mean i find it really really hard and sort of it's less enjoyable than making music but uh you know it's kind of it's more of a 
more of an end product thing, you know. It's sort of like when it's finished, it's, it's a very good feeling. Yes. But I, but I don't, in, yeah, I mean, I shouldn't really say it, but I don't enjoy it at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a lot of things. Because cause when you look at your audience, have you started sort of picking up some new and young people? Or do you go, well, they're the people that have been with me since the beginning? There there are, um, there definitely are, there, there, you know, it's that old sort of cliche, isn't it, where people's kids come to see you or whatever because they've been uh, just kind of, you know, indoctrinated with doing music from. Yes. <laughs> or, or they could, yes, I was, I was just going to say they could have been conceived while listening to one of your albums, I suppose. Yeah, it's because it's sort of, I feel a bit. I've sort of every now and again I sort of meet someone and they'll have, they'll have their young kids with them and and they sort of introduce them to you and. Kids always look terrified and always feel a bit, you know, do they really want to be, you know, would they rather be meeting Ed Sheeran or, you know, or whatever? Sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I sort of sometimes wonder how, how willing the young people are when their parents sort of introduce them to, to their music. Yes. And just kind of lastly, when you, when you sort of look back at the sort of scene and, as you said, you kind of straddle and sort of were almost part of the dark net, weren't you? The narrative of life, you know, you didn't sort of fit in it. But obviously there was a whole lot of bands around with you at the same time. Do you, do you ever sort of bump into each other and, and go, blimey, what was all that about? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, because of these, like, as I say, doing these sort of indie all day things, you, t- you tend to sort of see people who you haven't seen for the year and, and everyone's in the same kind of, because everyone's do, essentially doing the same thing. Um, and uh, you know, and it's yeah. But, or t- or t- I mean, I went to uh, I went to Australia with Pop Elite itself um, early in the year, and uh, I hadn't really I sort of seen some of them every now and again, but it it did feel like I had, you know I hadn't seen them for like a a week or something. You know, even though it was years, there was very much that sort of shared experience maybe that made that everyone kind of knows each other and get and gets on yes well it's probably quite different now because because i guess in those early days and especially when you're in those late teens and early 20s everyone keeps themselves to themselves and looks at everyone else with a certain yeah. amount of sort of attitude and a, a sort of a glance whereas now with age and being in probably the mid 50s you know everyone's quite happy to sort of be a bit more relaxed and um and a bit huggy i guess yeah there's definitely there's definitely more of that you know you sort of yeah, I mean, my, my sort of memory, apart from bands that we played the same gigs at, you know, that we played gigs with, there was definitely, you know, bands. It was kind of in your in your in your sort of uh, nature to to not like other, or not trust other bands, wasn't it? It was very much, uh, which I don't know if you get that in other in other occupations. I mean, I know a lot of stand up comedians, and they seem very supportive of each other. Well, I don't know if it's just if it's up if it's if they're like that in front of them and then behind each other's backs and slagging each other off. But there seems to be more of that than with with, with other sort of uh, creative industries. Yes. That, you know, didn't, get, didn't get that with bands. Well, you certainly definitely, I think you definitely get it in the music world because even during the sort of 60s, there was the sort of Beatles, Stones, and then in the 70s, there was a lot of rivalry. And then, yes, yeah. obviously, you know, when you watch those kind of... BBC Four documentaries where there's a sort of rivalry between the Duran Durans and Spandau Ballet, who I didn't particularly like, but you thought, oh right, I thought you would all just be yeah. one big huggy family, really. And then they nowadays they probably are, aren't they? Oh God, they love each other, don't they? Yeah. 
Well, apart from the lead singer of Spandau Ballet, and um, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. No. Anyway, look, yeah, I've got. Biography. <laughs> yes, yes. He he sort of there. Well, there was a press release one day saying Tony Hadley's no longer the lead singer of Spandau Ballet, and it was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting story there somewhere, isn't there? I don't know. Yes, obviously, there's like you mustn't say anything for five years. But when but they you... get that, they're one of those sort of awkward situations where, uh, where a band's kind of really well known for, for for the voice of the singer. And it's get that, you know, so he can go off now. Can't he? I think he's already doing it and sing Spandau Ballet songs. And is that possibility that he could become more popular than Spandau Ballet whilst <laughs> that's still going? It's a, yeah. Yes, I suspect um, one of the Kemp's are probably, well, I don't know. I think one of the Kemp's got all the royalties, so he probably can cope with it. But probably his ego sometimes gets a bit damaged anyway who cares that's spandau belly for you but look well thank you ever so much for talking to me and it's great to hear about the world of you know jamie wednesday and pink and and then carter and that famous you know glastonbury experience that was that was the period when you know glastonbury was one of the most important things in my year so um it was, it was all there, wasn't it, really? Oh, yeah, actually, the other band was um, in Spiral Carpets. I remember one year, everyone had those T-shirts that everyone, you know, wore yeah. for that 12 months before putting them in the wash. Yeah, so, yeah, because we've, with, with the, uh, at one of the, re- or two, yeah, two of the reunions, uh, Carter reunions, um, Tom Hingley from Spiral Carpets sang This Is How It Feels with us. So that that's kind of as matey as you can get, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God. That, that would confuse the narrative, wouldn't it, of the music industry from the, the indie dance grunge Britpop. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, that would mess their story up completely. But anyway, look, thank you again. And that really is the last part of my interview with James Morrison from Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. If you want to find out any more information, um, there's stuff on Facebook and also a website as well. And um, much appreciated for giving me the time for that. Anyway, this is David Eastor, The C86 Show, and I think we should um, finish with one more track from Carter, he says, looking down at his playlist. Another song from the album, 30-something deluxe version. This is Biddy Smart Circus. Tune in next week.
go out.